I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading the book of 2 Timothy. This is the New King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. Let's begin with an introduction to 2 Timothy. This letter was probably written a year or so after 1 Timothy from Rome, a second imprisonment there. Although outside the bounds of the account of the book of Acts, history would seem to indicate that Paul was rearrested this time during Nero's massive repression of Christians. He was most likely beheaded under Nero in 64 AD. This letter was sent to Timothy by the hands of Tychicus. Paul seems to be setting things in order in anticipation of his death. Paul's writing from Rome to Timothy in Ephesus. Ephesus is part of the region of the Roman Empire known as Asia. Rome is approximately 800 miles to the northwest of Asia, and Jerusalem is about 600 miles to the southeast. And if you're looking at the written notes of BibleTrack.org, there is a map. Let's begin with chapter 1. Timothy, guard the treasure. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy, when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands." For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began." but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day." Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. This you know, that all those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day, and you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. Well, as is typical in Paul's epistles, he establishes his authority in verse 1 when he refers to himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. 
you'd like more insight regarding the validity of Paul's apostleship, then look at the notes on Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. Paul refers to Timothy in verse 2 as a beloved son. This is a reference to the fact that Paul had discipled Timothy in the faith, a point he also makes in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, when he refers there to Timothy as a true son in the faith. Paul's background was completely Jewish. Since his conversion, Paul sought to convince the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah for which they were looking. In verse 3, he makes the point of this continuity between Judaism and life in Christ by saying this, I thank God, whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did. Paul did not abandon Judaism. He's serving God just as he and his forefathers did. Paul does some reminiscing in verses 4 through 6, making reference to his desire to see Timothy, along with a comment on the genuine faith of Timothy, and also his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. The Greek word for genuine there means without hypocrisy, and that's what makes it genuine faith. Paul first met Timothy and his family on his second missionary journey at Lystra in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. Paul refers to Timothy's ordination service in verse 6 when he says, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. That ordination was also discussed in greater detail in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. In addition to the introductory comments, Timothy is encouraged to guard the faith and keep it from corruption, specifically that he should combat the false teaching regarding the message of grace. In Paul's first letter to Timothy, it seems certain that this was some form of a false Gnostic doctrine that was prevalent in that region during that period of time. You can't help but admire Paul's boldness in the face of a death sentence when he says in 2 Timothy 1.7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. In verse 8, Paul encourages Timothy not to let affliction prevent him from spreading the gospel. In verses 9 through 11, he combines two callings into these verses. First of all, his call to salvation, and secondly, his call to the ministry. Both of these, by God's grace and without regard to Paul's capabilities or works. Not only was this call without regard to Paul's abilities, this call was determined prior to Paul's birth. He confirms this point when he says, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. If you'd like more information on God's predetermination, then look at the notes on Romans chapter 9. The ministry message is made clear, very clear, in verse 10 when he says, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. As a preacher and apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, in verse 11, Paul makes it clear that his mission of delivering the gospel to the Gentiles has resulted in his imprisonment when he says in verse 12, For this reason I also suffer these things. However, the suffering he experiences for doing so... It pales in the face of eternity. Paul begins his ministry charge to Timothy in verses 13 and 14. First of all, in verse 13, he says, Hold fast the pattern of sound words. He's talking about sound or healthy words there. He's encouraging Timothy to follow the pattern of healthy teaching, the pattern that Paul himself had demonstrated to Timothy. And then he says in verse 14, That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. So there's the ministry charge to Timothy. With regard to the ministry charge, Paul goes into greater detail in chapters 2 and 3 and summarizes that charge again in chapter 4. Actually, the whole letter is a charge to the ministry for Timothy in the face of Paul's departure. 
Paul expresses dismay over some believers in Asia in verse 15. He's not referring to the whole continent of Asia here, but a Roman province of Asia. That's to the west of Asia Minor, the west end of it, should I say. Ephesus was located there along with seven churches that John addressed in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. We know nothing more of Phygelus and Hermogenes beyond what is written here. Onesiphorus, in verses 16 through 18, is commended and also mentioned in chapter 4, verse 14, at the end of Paul's letter to Timothy. Then we have an overview of Paul's charge to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Here Paul provides a rather direct outline for the ministry as he elaborates on the charge given to Timothy in chapter 2. Notice these ministry commands. First, in verse 1, he says, Be strong. Then in verse 2, Teach faithful men. In verse 3, Endure hardship. In verse 14, Do not strive about words to no profit. In verse 15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. In verse 16, Shun profane and idle babblings. In verse 22, Flee also youthful lusts. In verse 22, Also, Pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace. And finally, in verse 23, avoid foolish and ignorant disputes. So let's begin reading this chapter with the charge. We begin with triple metaphors, a soldier, a runner, and a farmer, in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2. Verse 1, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things." Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained. Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Well, verse 1 seems to summarize Paul's comments in chapter 1. Based upon everything that's been said about you, Timothy, you be strong. In verse 2, Timothy's encouraged to take the gospel message that he'd heard under Paul and commit these to faithful men. Why? Well, that they may be able to teach others also. It's a multiplying effect, you see. And it's the one that Paul points out here. Disciples, discipling disciples. By the way, that work, the gospel message, circled the globe as a result of this very concept. In verses 3 through 6, Paul uses three metaphors to make his point regarding the ministry. First, Paul compares believers to soldiers in verses 3 and 4. The good soldier perseveres in the Christian life and views it as a battle against Satan. A soldier stays focused on the objective. He avoids distractions from his objective. So should believers. Then Paul metaphorically shifts to the Olympic runner in verse 5. You want a prize, the first place prize? Then you got to follow the prescribed rules for running the race. And finally, the farmer metaphor begins in verse 6. The laboring farmer sees the fruits of his labors. The perseverance of the soldier and the discipline of the Olympic runner yield the good harvest for the farmer. 
Paul pulls these metaphors together in verses 7 through 10 as he applies them to his ministry. Because Jesus is the Messiah, the seed of David, and resurrected from the grave, Paul is willing to suffer for that message of the gospel. The salvation of others, being called here the elect, is reward enough for the suffering. The suffering is worth the prize. Hmm. What do you suppose Paul means when he uses the word elect there? It's translated from the Greek word eklektos, and it's used 23 times in the New Testament. It's always translated elect or chosen. If you'd like a closer look regarding Paul's usage of that word elect, then take a look at my notes on Romans chapter 9. Then we have what's considered to be a confusing passage. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. And I read, This is a faithful saying, For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Some explanation is in order for verses 11 through 13. Some have used these verses to indicate that one's salvation might be lost under certain circumstances, and that is just not true. So let's break it down phrase by phrase. Verse 11 says this, This is a faithful saying, For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. The Greek verb translated died is an aorist indicative active verb, and it indicates a previous act of death. In other words, if we at some point in the past died with him, is what Paul's expressing here. We recognize that phrase from Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. That's where Paul pictures the salvation experience as putting to death the old man. So Paul says in verse 11 that those who have trusted Christ as their personal Savior will live with Christ in eternity. Now, before we look at the first half of verse 12, let's do a brief study on the word endure. The Greek word hupomeno is used 17 times altogether, and it's usually translated endure, as is the case in verse 10. Three times it's used in the context of being patient in trials. The Greek word itself is a compound word, which means to remain under. The connotation of this verse is to remain under control during affliction. So here's what Paul's saying. Your reward for remaining under control during the trials of being a Christian will be realized when you reign with Christ. This concept is explained nicely by Romans chapter 8, verse 18. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now for the troublesome phrase. Here's what it says. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Part of the modern-day misunderstanding of this verse is due to a very bad translation of the phrase by the New International Version, which renders this phrase, if we disown him. There is no precedent whatsoever to translate the Greek word arneomai, used in this verse, as disown. The English word disown implies current ownership. In reality, this phrase speaks directly to the proposition of salvation itself. After hearing the presentation of Jesus Christ as Savior and Messiah, will you accept or will you deny that proposition? So those who deny Christ, in other words, they decline to accept Jesus Christ as Savior, those people will be denied by Christ. Verse 13 puts verse 12 into perspective. Here's what it says. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. 
The Greek word for are faithless here is apesteo. The noun form of the root, P-I-S-T, means faith. The negative a at the beginning of it in this Greek word causes the word to mean no faith or unfaithful. So what happens when your faith becomes weak, even to the point of questioning your own salvation? Well, here's the great news. It's not our faith that keeps us saved, but it's God's faithfulness. It wasn't a mustering of faith on our part that saved us in the first place, but rather the faith of Christ, as seen in Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. And Galatians 2.16 and Galatians 2.20 both particularly note that we are saved by the faith of Christ. You really have to look at my notes on that in order to see what I'm talking about, because many translations, including the New King James Version, have inappropriately translated that faith in Christ, but it should be faith of Christ according to the construction of the Greek sentence. Look at my notes on Galatians 2, 15 to 21 for more explanation there. Again, let me say verse 13 teaches that even in our time of lack of faith or even seemingly no faith, Christ remains faithful still because he cannot deny the spiritual seed that has been planted in every believer at salvation which constitutes the born-again experience. Salvation is not based upon how we feel on any given day, but rather God's faithfulness to his spiritual children. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, we see that approved workmen are not ashamed. Verse 14, Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his." and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Flee also youthful lust, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. (laughs) Yeah, verse 15 is where we get the name for our kids' club, Awana. Paul contrasts approved workmen to disapproved workmen, those who go after profane and idle babblings in verse 16, being the disapproved worker. The two Greek words here that are used mean worldly foolish talk for that uh, profane and idle babbling. It's used in the context of discussing issues of doctrine. Likewise, avoid contention with others about words to no profit in verse 14. Such contentious conversation can be harmful to those who are, who are listening in on such conversations. 
There are a lot of false doctrines out there. Avoid them. How does one avoid false doctrine? Well, there it is. Study, study, study. Look at verse 15. He says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Study of God's word makes one an approved workman, and an approved workman knows how to rightly divide the word of truth. Paul comments on a couple of men who departed from the faith and taught false doctrine that the resurrection was already past. That was the doctrine they were teaching. We know nothing of Philetus beyond what is written right here, but Hymenaeus gets dishonorable mention in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. This false doctrine taught by them struck at the very core of the faith, causing the overthrow, he says, the overthrow of the faith of some in verse 18. The Greek word for overthrow there means to cause serious difficulty or trouble with regard to someone's belief. However, Paul is careful to clarify in verses 19 to 21 that salvation is based upon faith. Let's face it, there are going to be ill-informed false teachers. There are always going to be those ill-informed false teachers. This passage seems to demonstrate that they aren't necessarily lost people, but nonetheless they do damage to other believers. Notice verse 19, it says, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Paul treats the teaching of this ill-informed teacher as an iniquity that needs to be cleansed. His wording would indicate a, a reference to a precedent, likely that of Korah back in Numbers chapter 16. The wording here resembles that which was spoken by Moses in Numbers chapter 16, verse 5 and verse 26. It's a 1 John 1, 9 issue. That verse says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, in Paul's great house illustration here, these false teachers are vessels of dishonor. They have an opportunity, though, in verse 21 when he says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter... He will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. These teachers of false doctrine must cleanse themselves of that false doctrine. Now, keep in mind that Timothy was young. That makes Paul's comment of verse 22 particularly meaningful to him when he says, Flee also youthful lusts. The Greek noun for lust there is epithemia, which means strong desires. In other words, Timothy's encouraged to pass on the common indiscretions of youth and rather follow after a pattern of righteousness, faith, love, and peace. This is, by the way, the Holy Spirit-led inclination for those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. In verse 23, Paul notes that some questions just don't merit answers, being foolish questions which have no profitable use were they to be answered. One should not be absorbed by those kinds of questions. They cause unnecessary strife, for which a Christian minister should not be known, we see in verse 24. The purpose of gentle and patient correction is, first of all, to bring repentance, and secondly, to acknowledge the truth, and thirdly, to release from the snare of the devil. In chapter 3, Paul talks about perilous times, verse 1. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, 
having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapprove concerning the faith. But they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Paul issues a prophecy here regarding the last days. Godliness will prevail, and here's the rundown on the state of mankind during this time. He says they will be lovers of themselves, in other words, selfish. He used the word covetous there. It's a compound word, philia and argyros, which literally means a lover of silver. Then there will be boasters, um, people that are braggarts. comes from the compound Greek word, which means people that appear to be above other people. Blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, used here in the sense of being wild and untamed, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, pertaining particularly to impetuous and reckless behavior. Haughty means to be insanely arrogant, to be extremely proud, to be very arrogant. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Wow, what a list. These are the natural characteristics of carnality. Paul says it will become increasingly more difficult to take a stand for Christ in the face of this kind of cultural norm. In verse 12 he says, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The weak women of verses 6 and 7 are apparently a reference to those who go after new ideas, swayed by impulses rather than sound reasoning. Regarding Janus and Jambres in verse 8, most conclude that these were the two Egyptian magicians of Exodus chapter 7, verse 11 and verse 22. Since they aren't mentioned by name anywhere, this is just really an intelligent guess. Now, here's the scary aspect of these verses. The people described here may seem religious. Look at verse 5. It says, "...having a form of godliness, but denying its power. In the midst of a politically correct era, it's just not fashionable to categorize church-going religious people as anything other than trying their best to be right with God. However, these people with their form of godliness, well, let's face it, they are evil, evil, evil." Will it get better? No, it won't get better. Verse 13 says, But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Nevertheless, Paul encourages Timothy to expose error and manifest the truth in verses 9 through 11. In verses 14 through 17, we have a word about the word. Verse 14, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, 
for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We see the importance of exposing children to the Word of God at an early age. Romans 10:17 says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Then we have some important statements about the Word of God, beginning in verse 16. The phrase, given by inspiration of God, comes from just one Greek word, theonoustos. This compound Greek word literally means God-breathed. This is the definition of inspiration as it applies to Scripture. Now, I point this out to differentiate the way that many use the word inspiration. Artists use it to talk about how they felt when they painted a picture or wrote a song or a poem. As you can see, the Word of God is sourced as a work from God Himself. Paul says so here in this passage. It was not given as a result of an enhanced feeling of great emotion to those who wrote the words down. The Word of God was breathed out from God with the exact words that were to be written. It is this concept that protects the doctrinal integrity of the Word of God. While the Holy Spirit allowed the personality and circumstances of those credited with the writing to show through, the doctrine conveyed is the supernatural Word of God is inspired or breathed by God Himself through the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And that's what inspired means as it relates to Scripture. Now, notice the benefits of God's Word in verses 16 and 17. It says, first of all, that it's profitable for doctrine. The Greek word didaskalia means a concept of teaching. Then it's profitable for reproof. The Greek word elenkos, the evidence normally based on argument or discussion as to the truth or reality of something. And then the Scripture says that it's profitable for correction. The Greek word epinorthosis means to cause something to be or to become correct with the implication of a previous condition of having faults or failures. And then we see that finally it's profitable for instruction in righteousness. And what's the end result of the application of God's Word in the believer's life? Well, here it is in verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Greek word translated complete there means fully qualified. And the Greek word for thoroughly equipped there uh, literally means to be fully equipped for the task. So put it together and you have the Word of God being the tool that makes believers fully qualified and fully equipped for the ministry. So now that Paul has explained to uh, Timothy what he has, here's what you do with that sword, and it begins in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-5. through 5. Verse 1, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. We saw in uh, chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, what the Word of God really is. And that being the case, chapter 4, here in verses 1 and 2, this chapter explains how the gospel preaches to use the Word of God in his ministry. I like to think of these as the distinguishing characteristics of what the preacher is charged in verse 1, what he's charged to do when he preaches as found in verse 2, and that's to convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. 
So the preacher of the word is to use God's word to do the following. First of all, he's to convince, the Greek word elenko. This is the verb form of the noun that was used in chapter 3, verse 16, and it means to tell a fault. Secondly, he's to rebuke. The Greek word there is epitomao, and it means to express strong disapproval. Thirdly, he is to exhort. That's the Greek word parakaleo. means to cause someone to be encouraged or consoled. And then he's to do all these three things with long-suffering. The Greek word is makrothemia, which means patience. In other words, give folks time to respond to the message. And finally, to do these things with also teaching. The Greek word didache, which uh, literally it's the same root as doctrine used in chapter 3, verse 16, or teaching, and it's used interchangeably in Scripture with didaskalia. Now, I call these the fivefold characteristics of a pulpit message. Notice how unique those five components make the preacher's message in contrast to any other kind of public speaking. Tough assignment, don't you agree? However, while the preacher is convincing, rebuking, and exhorting, the doctrinal basis for this preaching must be included along with a long-suffering. That's the Greek word makrothemia, means to suffer long. The preacher's got to have long-suffering, understanding that people need time to spiritually grow. In other words, Paul's formula for preaching here doesn't make sweeping changes overnight. However, with the inclusion of doctrine and giving the people time, in other words, exercising long-suffering, the recipients of preaching from the Word improve in the quality of their Christian walk over time. Unfortunately, many preachers are looking for a quick-fix message. They're too impatient to wait for God to change hearts over an extended period of time. I've always been struck by the simple fact that we're told what the Word of God is in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, and then immediately we're told how the preacher is to use that tool. It's like saying, here's a saw, now go saw. Paul continues this charge to Timothy by pointing out in verses 3 through 5 that sound doctrine will become less and less fashionable as time goes on. Paul already realized, perhaps from the errant doctrines he'd already witnessed, that it would be difficult for preachers to hold the line on sound doctrine. They will go after flashy doctrines that deviate from the truth. Fables, he says. The Greek word muthos means myths, rather than unadulterated scripture. Then we see Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6-8, through 8, ready to check out of this world. Verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. As Paul's writing this letter to Timothy, He's anticipating his death at the probably execution by Nero, and he's reflecting on his accomplishments for God. When read in context, these three verses are very moving. Here's a man facing death, yet acknowledging that he has finished his course or his race. What makes this declaration more interesting is the fact that Paul had declared to the Ephesian elders back in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, that he must go back to Jerusalem to finish my race with joy, is what he said there. That's where Paul's big problems actually began. But he knew in advance that he was compelled to go to Jerusalem and stand up for Christ, whatever the consequences. And that was as a matter of finishing his course. 
I can't help but personalize these verses. Paul wasn't facing death with the attitude of, well, I should have done more. Paul was at peace with God and the service for God that he had performed. What a great testimony this is. As believers, we should be living a guilt-free life knowing that we are where God wants us and doing exactly what God wants us to do. And then we have some final thoughts in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9-22. through 22. Verse 9, Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and departed for Thessalonica, Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Antichicus I have sent to Ephesus. Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come, and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You also must beware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. At my first defense no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that the message might be preached fully through me, and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prissa and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth, but Trophimus I have left in Miletus sick. Do your utmost to come before winter. Eubulus greets you, as well as Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brethren. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. Well, with these parting comments, Paul points out the loneliness of standing for God. He encourages Timothy to come for a visit in verse 9. In verse 10, Demas had been a companion and fellow laborer of Paul during his first imprisonment at Rome, mentioned favorably in Philemon 24, and uh, also in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. You'll notice the mention of Luke in verse 11. It's commonly believed likely that Luke wrote his gospel account and the book of Acts during his time with the apostle Paul. Paul's call for Mark to join him is quite interesting here. Maybe not particularly significant, but interesting anyway. We first read about Mark in Acts chapter 12, verse 12. John was his Jewish name, and Mark was his Roman name. Most scholars consider him to be the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark. When the angel delivered Peter from prison, he went immediately to John Mark's house where the prayer meeting was being held. Paul and Barnabas took John Mark to Antioch in Acts 12:25, and then he accompanied them on Paul's first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13, verse 5. But Mark, for some reason, returned to Jerusalem, we see in Acts 13:13. 13, 13. Consequently, Paul refused to take John Mark with them on the second missionary journey, recorded in Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through 40, and that caused uh, Paul and Barnabas to part ways over that issue. Barnabas then took John Mark with him to Cyprus, while Paul chose another running mate, Silas. Later on, we find Mark with Paul in his first Roman imprisonment in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. Now Mark is requested by Paul to join him in his second imprisonment. Tychicus was from Asia and accompanied Paul on his last trip to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 20, verse 4. He delivered Paul's letters to the Colossians, we see in Colossians 4, verses 7 and 8, and to the Ephesians, as we see in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 21. Paul makes a request concerning the books, the Greek word biblia, and especially the parchments in verse 13. 
The Expositor's Bible Commentary has the following note concerning these parchments, and I quote, This kind of writing material was more expensive than papyrus, membrana, a Latin word only here in the New Testament is where it's used, were scrolls or codices written on animal skin, vellum. These may have been leather scrolls of Old Testament books. And that's the end of the quote. There's a special mention of a guy named Alexander in verse 14. He was a coppersmith who, with Hymenaeus and others, fostered certain heresies regarding the resurrection. That's recorded in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Paul excommunicated him, according to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, when compared to the language for excommunication used by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5. We do see in these verses, however, the commendation Paul extends to those who have stuck with him. Paul first met Aquila and his wife Priscilla in Acts chapter 18. Like himself, they were tent makers. We know nothing additionally about Onesiphorus beyond what is written here and up in chapter 1 verse 16 where it says, The Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. Erastus was a municipal worker referred to in Romans chapter 16 verse 23. Trophimus is mentioned as being sick. He was from the province of Asia and accompanied Paul in carrying the offering from the Gentile churches to the poor saints at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 20, verse 4. As a matter of fact, Paul was arrested in Jerusalem because of Trophimus. We see that in Acts chapter 21, verse 29. We know nothing else regarding Eubulus, Houdens, Linus, and Claudia beyond their mention here in verse 21. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walton.